We're so happy to be joined today by the author of one of our team's favorite 2019 reads, Lydia Slaby, who wrote, Wait, It Gets Worse. Lydia joins us today all the way from upstate New York. Hello, Lydia. Hello. <laughs> it's so How good. How are you guys? We're great. We're really good. Happy Great. Oh, I'm so happy to see October. Um, also, Lydia, it's just really nice to hear your voice. The last time you were in London, uh, you, you came to visit us in Clerkenwell, and I wasn't even here. So I know, such a bummer. That really was a bummer, but you did this amazing talk. I mean, Jess, you were here for that. I was, and I know you had a very good excuse, Jesse. You were off getting me. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, it was an incredible event. It was our first People Not Patients in-person event, and having you kick us off really has set a tone. Um, Lydia, for people who may not have read your book, um, again, it's not a cancer memoir, but it does sort of treat you know, your living through non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as a catalyst. Uh, can you talk a bit about kind of what's where the book begins and, and what it's about? Sure thing. So... I the the book covers about four years of my life, and it starts with uh, my cancer diagnosis. But and then it kind of goes back and it talks about my relationship with my husband, and then it moves forward and it talks about what happened after I was basically done with cancer, and a lot happened after I was quote unquote done with cancer um, until the end of the book. And the reason why I wrote this book is because my story is a very boring cancer story, but I think it's a really interesting transition story. I could not live the life that I was leading before my cancer diagnosis after I got better. And I tried. I really tried. And I failed. And so then I had to rethink the way that I was living my life. And it was messy and it was complicated and it was hard. And so I wrote the book to tell that story. I wrote the book to tell the story about what happens after the doctor sends you home and says, you're healthy, great, go live your life. Because it's not as easy as just going back to the life that you were leading. And for some people it may be, I don't know. For me it wasn't. Um, and then I realized as I was writing the story that a lot of people go through transitions all the time. In fact, all of us go through transitions all the time. And it's not one of those things that we're taught about in school how to handle. And so I wanted the book to be able to tell my way of handling that moment in my life um, in an effort to be able to perhaps help others who are facing transitions of their own. I mean, that is incredibly well said. I love I love the way you talk about the fact that you are just not the same human that started um, this journey. You're just not the same person. So, of course, you're not going to be able to live the same life. Um, one of the things that struck me, and this is sort of along the lines of language and identity, you said before that you don't find it helpful to identify as a cancer survivor. And I thought your thinking on that was pretty compelling. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. I... The language of survivorship and fighting and battles, um, it's its a hard language for me to live in. You know, the language of us versus them. It's this language of, well, I will fight this thing that's inside me and I will win and I will dominate and then I will survive. Um, and with 
very with no disrespect to people who use this language because i mean fighting cancer is a war um but then being on the other side of it i didn't want to be constantly referred back to this point in my life where i was in a war um you know a rape survivor tsunami survivor war survivors i mean we're all defined by what what happened to us in the past and and that is completely valid as a team that works with people um you know frequently we work with patient groups um and and a lot of times the key audiences there are people who've been newly diagnosed so i do also really understand the need for survivor stories the need for that hope but i think it's a really important reminder that that puts a lot of pressure on the people who have lived through it to go back to an incredibly tough period of their lives over and over and over again. So that balance, it's great that you wrote the book because then you can just give someone the book. Uh, it certainly does. Oh, here, I wrote it down. Now I don't have to tell it again. Makes it easier. <laughs> it's a really fast read, I promise. <laughs> Yeah, it sure is. It's it's taken me across a couple of really uh, long plane journeys. So thank you for that. Um, And I think it's a real call for more transition stories. I mean, I can see the value in hearing, you know, that's the learning for me of this book is that it takes us to a place of what's next, as you said, um, and it doesn't take you into this backwards looking place. Um, and it doesn't label you in any other way you want other than the path that, quite frankly, all of us are, I would imagine, at some stage, you know, dealing with a major life transition and to have these kinds of stories as they relate to health, which is, for for many reasons, such a taboo topic and such a topic that I think people shy away from sharing because they're worried about how it's going to make other people feel or look. Um, I just, yeah. more transition stories and if they can relate to health bring them on. God forbid we're mortal. God forbid. Well, I know, right? Exactly. Newsflash, we're all going to die. Um, and, you know, it's just how, how we approach life before that happens, I think, is the important part. You know, I think of myself as a storyteller, right? And one of the stories that I tell is the story of cancer and of survivorship. Um, and so, like, you know, I certainly do let that part of my life inform my current thinking. I just don't live in it. Yeah. And in our world, we talk a lot about technology transforming healthcare. But I think just remembering that through all of this, we're, we're still human. I mean, yeah. there might be a point where, where that gets significantly oh, altered, but we're not there yet. And so more human stories uh, in and around this amazing tech that is helping us live longer, please. Cancer, as we have discussed in the past, and I have discussed this with others in my life, changes every single relationship that you have. It touches everything. Um, and I have a question because many of us struggle with, you know, is a little bit critical earlier of the battle language and all of this stuff, but that's because it's really hard to talk about um, these kinds of topics because you don't want to overstep you don't want to put yourself in someone else's shoes and get it wrong. You don't want to make someone feel worse, right? Um, and you have this incredible theory. It's actually, I guess, Susan Silk's ring theory it comes from. And when you talked about that here in London, 
you talked about um, a really helpful way of framing how you talk to people who are going through an illness. And I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that. So can you explain the theory, the theory and then tell us about your experience? Yeah, absolutely. And I was delighted to discover that this was an actual theory that had been written down. Um, and you can Google it. It's you know pretty straightforward. It was in the LA Times. It's this idea that, I mean, it, it basically takes the idea that we're all the center of our own universe, right? Um, makes perfect sense. And then we have concentric rings of people and relationships that surround us. And when we get sick, suddenly that becomes a slightly different way of thinking about things. So, you know, when I was sick, I was this little dot in the middle of my little universe. And my husband, Michael, was the closest ring around me, kind of orbiting me. And then the next ring out was, say, you know, my sister and my parents and really close friends. And then the next ring out and then the next ring out and then the next ring out. So the idea behind the theory is that what's inside can dump pain out, but what's outside can only bring love in. So I could complain about my life and my circumstances and all of the rest of it to anyone that I wanted to complain to about it because it was my life and my circumstances. Michael could complain to anyone about my life and the impact that it was having on him to anyone other than me. But with me, he could only love me. He could only tell me how amazing I was and how extraordinary I am and how much our relationship meant to him. You know, I mean, all the things, right? Um, and then it just goes out from there. And what I realized very early in my diagnosis was that a lot of people don't understand that coming to someone dealing with their own really like health emergency and saying, you know, with, with a great deal of love in their heart, but just the wrong words in their mouth, like, I'm really upset about the fact that you're sick. Can you help me with this? It's like, no, no, like you, like, no, not at all. Like you go deal with your upset somewhere else. Um, like, I get it. You're upset because you love me, but like, this is not my problem to solve. Um, and so that happened a lot. And to be honest, there were some people very close to me who didn't know how to handle my own illness. And some of them I dealt with by, frankly, shifting the relationship around. And others I dealt with, like my mother, by like just, you know, managing it because she's my mother. Um <laughs> you know, moms. Um, so I find the, the ring theory super helpful and I give it to everyone who's going through any kind of trauma. I gave it to my friend who is going through a divorce. I gave it to a friend of mine, even, you know, who just had a new baby, but she was having a hard time sort of dealing with herself and the new baby and husband and life. You know, I mean, like new babies are a lot, right? Um, and the trick is to just love the crap out of the person going through the trauma and express concern elsewhere. Um, and what was really interesting to me was to discover the people in my life who, frankly, came in to a smaller, to, to one of my closer in 
concentric circles. I mean, you don't actually list these people out. Like, that's sort of horrible. But, like, it, it became very clear who was coming in and who was going out um, just by the way they were handling it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, I mean, in, in the moments where I had enough clarity to witness what was going on, it was really quite extraordinary. I mean, like, the friend who cannot handle hospitals because the sight of blood makes him throw up, you know, would show up to my hospital room when I was in the ICU and just sit there and hold my hand. You know, it's like, I knew what that took for him to do. And it was like, oh man, that is a good, good friend. And he wouldn't complain about the hospital. He didn't say anything. He was a little pale, but like he did it. Right. And he just held my hand. It's like, people show you who they are. Like these are the times that people show you who they are. Exactly. And people who are really frankly kind of obsessed with themselves are not useful in these situations <laughs> or in most situations but yes especially yeah. here especially here <laughs> i think what's so helpful about this this concept of sort of complaining out and bringing love in is that it's directional without telling you exactly what you need to say so there's no like list of banned words here or things you must say no. It, you get to interpret it in your own way, and, and but it gives you a really nice lens of how to be helpful. And I do think that that's what people want to be. Genuinely, most people want to be a good friend to do this. I just don't necessarily think we ever teach people how to support people when they need us Well, we most. don't, right? You know, we, we teach people how to, emp- how to sympathize, but not how to empathize, right? That's right. That's yeah. beautiful. And not to get, you know, worky for a second, but I do I do think there's a parallel here where, you know, if you're if you're basically, you know, let's say that you're, you know, a company who's trying to communicate about uh, a group of people that they serve through providing treatment or a kind of service, like your narrative can't be based on somebody else being a victim. Like that's not cool, that's not effective, and it's not a way to build any kind of relationship or understanding for what the people that you're actually there to treat are going through. Um, so I, I think that silk ring theory actually has, or silk's ring theory, I should say, has a lot to offer across the board. Um, and I guess kind of going back to that kind of very close in layer, I feel like I should disclose. So like Lydia, you and I know each other because um, your husband and I worked together um, many, many moons ago uh, one time and then a second time because he hired me on the, or he got me hired onto the Obama campaign, which I will forever be grateful to him for basically during a lot of the action in the first third of the book. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, and from a, from a distance, but you know, it, again, it really just impressed upon me how incredible it was that you two were able to process this together and come out on the other side as totally different people who are still married to each other and actively making those decisions together. Yeah, there was a slim chance at one point that that was actually all going to work out. So I'm glad that you I'm glad that you were able to witness kind of the Yes, I've seen I've seen the before and after and it is it is a miraculous and a testament to how much work you guys have put in. Uh, on yourselves and on your relationship. And I think one of the things that stood out for me in the book and something that we've talked a a little bit about previously is, you know, you were young when you got diagnosed. You were a newlywed. And 
to suddenly, you know, have all of the kinds of challenges, you know, just like having a new baby is tricky. Having a new husband is also tricky. And you go through all of those transitions and identifying yourself as part of a whole. And that's all normal. And then to add a serious cancer diagnosis on top of that, and for Michael to, you know, need to transition into being a carer and also working in a very high stress job as you were also working in a very high stress job. You know, can you talk a bit about what that transition was like and what that felt like as a as a young person? Oy. Uh yes, I can talk about that. Um so Michael and I had just celebrated our 2-year anniversary about a month before I was diagnosed. And um Unfortunately, for a good portion of those two years, we were actually in a constant low-grade fight about his, um, <laughs> frankly, about his going back to the 2012 Obama election. So um, yep. so there was that going on. Um, he was working a very high-stress job. I was not doing a good job of being supportive. In fact, I was doing quite the opposite job. Um, I was working as a white collar litigator for one of the biggest law firms in the world. Um, so we were leading externally stressful lives and then our marriage was stressed on top of it. Um, and then I was diagnosed with cancer and it was literally like, oh, well, shit. Like it was the, it was very much the straw that broke the camel's back and, I like to say, and I'm perfectly blunt about this, that cancer saved my marriage um, because what it did is it stopped the conversation about our jobs. It stopped the conversation about how much I hated his job. It stopped the conversation about how much he hated mine, it, blah, 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 because suddenly we had this new, really important thing to talk about that both of us cared deeply about being on the same side of, like, Neither one of us liked the fact that I had cancer. Yeah. And so that was something that we like bonded over. Um, and Michael is one of those remarkable human beings who is a natural born caregiver. Um, I'm exceptionally lucky that I have a husband like that. And it comes from, you know, his own history, but and he moved into a role that he's familiar with and comfortable in, um, frankly, made the whole thing a little bit easier. I'm a very bad patient. I don't like being out of control of my situation. And that book, the book talks about that a lot. And being sick like that threw me completely out of control of my own life. Um, and so I had to learn to be comfortable in the present that was completely out of control, which was a process. Um, but having a husband sitting next to me who was calm and quiet and funny and, um, you know, supportive in all of the really important ways throughout made it much easier for me. And so in some respects, the fact that Michael was thrust into this carer role um, saved our marriage, but we had to, you know, after sort of the two to four to six months of the trauma of all of this happening, we had to then figure out how, how to go back to being married. And I had to figure out how to be sexy again when I was, you know, emaciated and bald with no eyelashes and like, frankly, had a really 
my body, without going into too much detail, like my body wasn't working the way that it was supposed to work. Um, I had all sorts of menopausal symptoms. And so being 33 with menopausal symptoms and trying to like rebuild a marriage is tough. Um, and that actually is probably the most lingering emotional damage from the whole thing that we still deal with every now and again today um, is how to make sure that we're connecting in a way that is authentic to our relationship um, and not sort of reflecting back to someone needing to take care of someone else or someone needing to support someone else. Um, and so that still takes the time that it takes today. But, you know, we did get pretty clear while I was sick mm. that he was the person I wanted to be with and I was the person that he wanted to be with. And so that at least, th that question was at least answered. <laughs> but yeah, it was hard. I mean, it was hard being 33 and suddenly, you know, not having the body that I always had, right? Like, you know, sexy and beautiful and compelling and like all of the things that women do with their bodies, unconsciously or not, suddenly I couldn't yeah. do. Um, and that was, I mean, that's, that was hard. Yeah. yeah. That's a whole other conversation around how toxic it is to be a woman and be sick at the same time. Oh, yeah. And the things that society allows you to do when you don't have hair or eyelashes. Um, I think we're getting, I see, I guess I see progress there for sure in that level of representation. But again, you're a whole person. You're still a married woman. You're still 33. And even when you're in survivor mode, like that, some of those expectations don't go away. And I don't know, you were, you're really eloquent about that in the book. Well, thank you. It was funny. Actually, there's a story I didn't tell in the book that you'll appreciate. So the night of the election, um, I didn't have any eyelashes and I'd gone that day to actually get fake eyelashes applied. Um, and I was also like done with the wigs. And so I show up to the election night party in Chicago and I have no wig on. I'm bald, which is surprising to a lot of people. Um, with these like fake eyelashes, but within minutes of having them put on, the glue is killing my eyes. Right. And so, you know, 10 minutes into this whole event where I'm like, it's fine, I'm bald, but at least I have eyelashes. I just take the eyelashes off and I go and wash my face. Um, and so at that point I am bald, I'm pasty, I'm pale, I have no eyelashes and, like, and I'm holding Michael's hand and everybody's like, oh, right. Right. That's right. Your wife has cancer. <laughs> it's like there was there was like no hiding from it that night. And he was so funny. He was like, yep, this is my wife. She's got cancer. And that's what we just lived through in the last six months. How are you doing? We won. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The rest of us were like 20 pounds overweight, having lived on Sour Patch Kids and cheeses. And it's like, oh, you've been going through something a lot realer than we have. Oh, cool. Great. Nice to see everyone. Yeah. Well, the funny thing was, is that Michael actually wouldn't let me come to headquarters um, because I my blood counts were so low and I was so, you know, susceptible to any kind of possible illness or virus. And uh, and apparently headquarters in the last month of the election was just this Petri dish of disease. Um, so he wouldn't even let me yeah. come, which I which. Yeah. Which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> Away from Sour Patch Kids and false eyelashes. Um, I mean, you really were on the cusp of a trend <laughs> because everyone's wearing them 
now. That's true. Um, uh, what would your life be like now if you hadn't written it down? You know, it would a little bit be like splitting myself in half and being like, okay, well, write your life down and have the life that you're leading or don't see what that life looks like and then come back three years later and see what your life looks like. It's hard to do that. But I believe that I would be suffering from some form of PTSD. Um, I mentioned before that I use my writing to recover from to recover and understand from what it is that I'm going through on a day-to-day basis and writing the entirety of this particular story down was hugely cathartic and hugely healing for me. In fact, there were bits and pieces of the book that just took me weeks to write. I'm usually a very, um, I can usually spit out words pretty quickly and there are bits and pieces that just took me ages to get down on paper and multiple therapy sessions to get through. And if I hadn't done that, I mean, every time I talk about the ICU or certain parts of chemotherapy or um, some of the surgeries that I had, I'd break out into a sweat. Um, and you know, it took me a long time to talk about some of them without bursting into tears. So the wonderful thing about telling this story in the way that I did and publishing it and all the rest of it is that I can now talk about my story without being triggered emotionally by it and without literally like going back into those rooms and feeling what it felt like to have those doctors work on me in that way. Um, So that's, you know, I don't know if my life on the outside would look very different. Um, I think it probably would, honestly, Um, just because, you know, writing a book versus not writing a book, life takes the turns that it takes. But I would be a less healthy human if I hadn't written it down. Um, You know, and everybody has their way of recovering from trauma. I mean... I did it through writing and some people do it through art and some people do it through, you know, song. I mean, everybody does it their own way. Right. Um, But my way was to do it by telling the story Um, and frankly, making sure that the story, my story is of use to other people. Um, I don't want, I don't want to feel like my life is not useful to the planet and to our culture. Um, And so the fact that I wrote this story down and potentially can help people think through their transitions, through the language, through their own relationships, and sort of view what they're going through in in perhaps a different way that might be more helpful to them than the way they were thinking about it before, then, you know, I'm, I'm delighted. So the fact that I've been able to take this story and do something good with it is really the point of it all in my mind. I often have the experience that once I can articulate something, I know how I felt about it. So I find that words give you this power to learn stuff that you perhaps didn't know. Is there anything that you learned that you didn't know about your own personal experience from the act of writing it? I'd I'd never seen quite how 
toxic my relationship with myself was before I wrote it all down. Um, and I use the word toxic on purpose. Like I had a very successful career by a very young age because I drove myself to it. And, um, that drive caused all sorts of damage. Um, so what I've had to do with, you know, Michael's support and patience for the last sort of five years is get comfortable with the idea that the life that I thought I was going to be leading for most of my childhood and young adultness, like everything I was moving towards was not actually, is not actually the life that I want or frankly that I can survive um, on a very practical level. And in the book, you say that when you were diagnosed, you didn't research your diagnosis. How does a control freak resist that temptation? (laughs) By having an older sister sit her down and tell her not to. Um, I was exceptionally lucky and also exceptionally unlucky to have a sister who is also a cancer survivor, for lack of a better phrase. Um, My sister has been in and out of Hodgkin's lymphoma for almost 14 years. And so when I was diagnosed, she was actually in treatment of her own. And, um, and she, she sat me down basically over the phone and said, don't do it. Like, it's going to tell you all of these things that may or may not happen to you. And so all you're going to do is think about what could happen and not what actually is happening. So it's interesting. My like human beingness, you know, it's funny. A friend of mine read that subtitle and she said, well, aren't we all human beings? And then just some of us are control freaks on top of it. And I was like, yes, but stop pulling it apart. Um, so I would argue that actually we're all a bunch of human doings, not a bunch of human beings. Um. And so my first experience of of being a human being, of just being in my life, happened in the hospital. Um, I started meditating. I stopped, um, you know, I didn't Google things. I didn't ask my doctor for details about what could happen. Michael has a phrase that he he's known for. of wait to worry. Like why bother worrying about something until it's actually right in front of your nose? Um, because then if it happens, you've lived through it twice. And if it doesn't happen, then you've already lived through it once. And that sucks. Um, so there was a lot of me learning how to be present in the hospital. And frankly, not Googling my diagnosis was the first time I'd ever done that. Be Well, the first time I'd ever actively chosen to be present and not swept up in the future mm-hmm. and the potential and the what ifs and the oh my gods um because no matter what was going to happen I was going to be sitting in that hospital room for another 4 months getting a chemotherapy drip and so like whether or not I knew how that was going to actually interact with my cells and this that and the other and whether or not I was going to live or die and what potential of me living or dying it didn't really make much difference. It's like I was doing what I was doing and that wasn't going to change. Um, Super odd. Yeah. 
I mean, the way that my sister put it, she was like, listen, the statistics don't matter. You're either going to live or you're going to die. So the statistics <laughs> in your case are either 0% or 100%. Like, so what difference does it make? That's great perspective. It I have is. literally never thought of it that way. I know. It's on, it's on page 34 of the book. And it is. <laughs> I had to stop and just really let that one sink over me. And I think wait to worry are words to live by yeah. um, in these transitional times that we are living in. So in these transitional you. times, it's going to be Jess's memoir. <laughs> Forward by Lydia Slaby and Jesse Lang. Yes. Thank great. Perfect. Sign me up. I got to go. I'm going to start writing. Um, okay. That's, that's a great reminder. Um, Lydia Slaby, everyone, pick up uh, Wait, It Gets Worse at your local bookseller online if you absolutely must. Um, and Lydia, thank you so much for being on today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is so fun. I always love talking to you guys. That's, it is. It's always a good chat. It is always a good chat. Some of my favorites. Thanks so much, Lydia. And thanks a lot, Jesse. Absolutely. Thank you, Jess. And thank you to everyone who's tuned in. Join us next time for People Not Patients. See you soon.